Welcome back to the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins. All was calm and quiet for a while, or so it seemed, in the realm of COVID in Australia. And it looked like at least for the last two weeks, like all the Australian states were finally getting on top of community transmission. And, you know, state and territory leaders felt comfortable letting everyone come out of almost three months isolation and go to the pubs. But were we too quick to get so comfortable? Today, I'm joined by our brilliant COVID-19 live blogger, Bianca O'Grady. Bianca, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Francine. It's lovely to be here. So Bianca, firstly, we've seen in recent days and even the last week a sustained increase in COVID-19 notifications popping up in Victoria, mainly in Melbourne and the surrounding suburbs. And it's a little bit alarming. We went from single digits just a couple of weeks ago and very low community transmission. And now we're back up to daily double digits. What's going on? Yeah, look, what's happening in Victoria is a little concerning. And there's uh, certainly people now suggesting that this could be the start of the second wave um, if we don't kind of get a lid on it, which is why uh, the Premier, Victorian Premier, has um, decided to reinstate some of the lockdown um systems um so yeah so victoria has had a sustained rise in cases um i think in fact i just saw a headline earlier today about 33 new cases in the last 24 hours so it's it's still going up it's a it's definitely community transmission so we're seeing a lot of household clusters family clusters um and there's also a lot of workplace clusters. So uh, there's one around um, a hotel, which was actually a hotel where um, international travellers were quarantined. So there was some spread through there. We've had a couple of work staff in aged care, a couple of uh, students and teachers at schools. Um, we also had a GP, a Melbourne GP, who was actually exposed to it through a patient who was infected. And the GP didn't realise they'd been exposed. Um, they were asymptomatic. They worked for a couple of days. I don't know that there's been any further transmission from that particular case. But, yeah, we're getting up into the sort of 15 to 20 new cases um, a day in Victoria. So um, it is alarming. It is cause for concern. Um, new South Wales did have uh, – we had nine new cases in New South Wales or ten um, in sort of yesterday, but they were all return travellers in hotel quarantine. So thankfully at the moment, New South Wales isn't showing the same levels of community transmission. But like you said, we just can't afford to let our guard down, um, especially now with cases going up in Victoria and people wanting to travel more and, you know, booking holidays and things like that. Uh, you know, I, I think this shows us that we, we, um, we really need to keep up our efforts with respect to um, physical distancing, social distancing, you know, staying at home as much as possible, working from home as much as possible, doing all of those things. We just have to keep doing them because as soon as we loosen those, loosen up, I guess, we're going to start seeing these spikes again. Yeah, it's almost a little bit charming though that the New South Wales border is still open with Victoria. Um, I certainly am a little bit concerned by that. Um, and I know that the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian says, you know, it's it's fine to keep the border open, just don't associate with Melbourneians. I know, I thought that was kind of a funny way of putting it. It's like, don't, you know, don't associate with them. It's like, it, it it's, it's very strange. I mean, I think, it, you know, it would just be simpler to just close the border and say, well, okay, this is a threat. Um, it's an issue. We, we want to keep down our transmission. And, and, I mean, it does really cut to the question of, you know, what is next with how we deal with this? And, you know, there's a number of, I think, different proposals and I'm sure, you know, the Prime Minister and the National Cabinet have been 
you know, trying to model the best way forward. But, you know, that idea that maybe we, we kind of really do try and limit our interactions, our physical interactions to people within, you know, our kind of bubble, you know, like a geographic social familial bubble um you know so for me living where i live in a fairly small town in the blue mountains it's you know that would be relatively easy and uh, yeah, i mean obviously it'd be harder for people living in cities but you know that idea that the fewer people that you interact with um and the fewer people they interact with then the less chance there is for those transmissions to occur but um but yes i think border closures i mean it's, it's such a silly thing some of the the slanging matches that goes on between the premiers. I just think, oh, really? Just get over it and actually focus on the thing that we need to be doing, which is stopping transmission. So, yeah, it's a bit funny seeing them all squabble about it. Absolutely. And, I mean, one of the arguments is, oh, we can't possibly close the border because Aubrey Wodonga on the New South Wales-Victorian border, you know, they're not two towns. They're basically one. They see themselves as one, uh, to which I say, that's fine. They can be one, and let's arbitrarily draw the border at Bowner then. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's going to end up being like Berlin and the you know the Cold War. They have East Berlin and West Berlin, and I don't think it's quite going to get to that stage. But yes, walls dividing cities never went never end well, generally speaking. So uh, can't see that one that one going too well. And this week, I mean, we also have to deal with the likes of the leader of the free world suggesting that COVID testing should be stopped um, so that they don't find any more cases. Supposedly. Yeah, I think there should be a, a rule that whatever Trump, Trump says, do the opposite and we'll probably be okay. Uh, yeah, he, he seems to have um, completely got the wrong end of the stick and thinks that, well, if you don't test, then you won't find any more cases and therefore the disease will go away, which is such spectacular stupidity, like just gobsmacking that, it, I, yeah, I, I just find I'm, I'm lost for words with Trump. He, he can't possibly be that stupid. This is like the best comedy act of all time, except it's so not funny because of the position that he's in. But, yeah, someone got up on stage and said that in a comedy you know, comedy performance and everyone I think it would be hilarious. But, no, it's the President of the United States saying it. And he says to my people, slow the testing down. Sure, sure, Don, go with that. And on that note, I have to hand the tweet of the week to Dr. Tim Senior, who reacted to Trump um, on Twitter, and he wrote, does anyone else remember that lecture at medical school? If you don't test for a disease, the body doesn't know it's got it, and so it doesn't die. And he said, no, me neither. And then someone else replied, I stopped testing for pregnancy and ended up with 43 children. Bingo. Nailed it. <laughs> I mean, the jokes just write themselves. So, Bianca, we finally had some more solid news out this week about a low-cost steroid that could be a little bit promising as a COVID-19 treatment. Uh, what do we know so far? Yeah, so this is some pretty big and potentially very good news, which is that the, um, the steroid dexamethasone um, has there's some stu- a big study uh, data suggesting that it does um, it lead to significantly lower mortality in COVID-19, particularly among patients who are on ventilators, who are therefore the much sicker patients. Um, and also um, it does seem to be more effective in those who are aged who, um, under 70, younger patients, and also in men versus women. So these are the results of the UK-based recovery trial, which attracted some wrath last week on the interwebs because they did what everyone's cursing um, this action at the moment, which is publishing results by press release. It's the most irritating, annoying, and irresponsible way to promote or to put out study data because 
it basically is just selectively whips up this uh, um, excitement about things without giving people the opportunity to actually critically analyse the data, which is fundamental to the practice of science is that we need to be able to examine the evidence. And when you put out a press release that says, oh, look, we found these wonderful things, but you don't provide the data, you're kind of short-circuiting the whole process. And it's like you could have just waited a week or you could have put it up on a preprint server so that people could actually see the whole study. So anyway, they have now, the recovery trial, have now published this on um, the non-peer review, that's always important to stress, uh, preprint server archives. So the uh, recovery trial is, is in itself a staggering achievement. They, they've got something like 11,000 patients that have been recruited to this study in the UK, um, all with COVID-19, um, and it's a multi-arm study. So they're really trying to test as many possibility, uh, many different options. So they were looking at hydroxychloroquine. Uh, I believe they're also looking at remdesivir and, um, and now dexamethasone. Um, and it's, it's open label, so it's not blinded, uh, but it is randomised. So that's, you know, something working in its favour. So in this particular piece of data that came out, they had 2014 patients who were randomised to daily oral or intravenous dexamethasone compared to 4,321 uh, 4, who were randomised to usual care. And it's worth noting that in that usual care group, um, 7% were also treated with dexamethasone because it is a drug, it's a steroid that's um, currently used to treat um, acute respiratory distress syndrome anyway, um, although as the, the uh, authors of this study did say that the evidence for that is fairly thin on the ground, um, but it's it's a drug that's been used in these sorts of conditions before. So, you know, there was always a, the possibility that it was going to be useful here. So basically they found that 17% um, fewer patients in the dexamethasone arm died within 28 days compared to the, those with, uh, who had usual care. So overall it amounted to a 35% reduction, relative reduction in 28-day mortality, so 3% fewer patients. Um, uh, so this was um, amongst patients receiving mechanical ventilation, sorry, there was a 35% relative reduction. Among patients receiving just oxygen therapy, there was a 20% reduction in 28-day mortality. But in patients who weren't getting any kind of respiratory support, there was no benefit for mortality. So it does suggest that it really the, the, the clearest benefits are in patients who have more severe disease. Um, that, and they also noted that the patients who were on mechanical ventilation, interestingly, tended to be younger and tended to have had a longer generation of symptoms, sorry, longer duration of symptoms. So I was interested that they were younger. I assumed it would be the way around. But anyway, um, and there was a subgroup analysis looking at the effect of age and sex, and they found that there were significant mortality benefits seen in those aged under 70, but not in those aged um, 70 to 80 or uh, or 80 above like there was a trend in this sort of 80 to above I think but it didn't it um, didn't reach statistical significance um, and also the significance was in men but not in women they saw there was a slightly like a one day shorter duration of hospital stay um, with dexamethasone um, and patients were more likely to be discharged from hospital within 28 days so I mean, I don't know how this compares to remdesivir actually in terms of the benefit, but it's definitely a significant gain uh, to the extent that I, I would imagine this will start to change clinical practice uh, fairly soon, at least in patients for whom this is not contraindicated. But it's, yeah, and, and the authors did 
call for a change to the recommendations at the moment because apparently the current recommendations actually uh, in some cases advise against corticosteroid use in COVID-19. And I think when when COVID was really kicking off, there were concerns about steroids. So um, it's interesting to see this. It could be that uh, maybe those early that early data was in kind of um, uh, less severe patients, perhaps, and maybe that's why benefit wasn't seen. But you know, it's a low cost drug. It's well known. It's uh, widely available. Um, it's available worldwide. So you know, if this is the thing that um, ends up being the solution, I mean, that's that's fantastic. It's certainly better than an incredibly expensive um, and you know not widely available alternative, which I believe remdesivir is is a bit like that. So we'll have to keep watching that space. And how about if we move across to some of the research showing how age and the structure of households and how big those households are and, you know, all of those socio-demographic interlinking factors actually play out when COVID is introduced to those different situations in different countries. Uh, what has been discovered, Bianca? Yeah, this is, I mean, it's an intriguing notion because uh, as we've seen, particularly in Victoria, the spread within households um, can be a major factor in, I guess, the um, in the spread of COVID generally. And so researchers, they used census data from 81 countries to look at, first of all, the kind of age distribution, uh, the demographics in those countries, but then also to look at co-residence patterns for private households. So, you know, are households more likely to be, you know, um, younger, um, like single families living together, you know, just parents and kids, or do you tend to have smaller households or do you tend to have larger multi-generational households where you have grandparents or even great-grandparents living under the same roof as know as their kids and their grandkids and their great grandkids um, and and what influence might that have on um, the impact that COVID-19 has in terms of mortality rates so what they looked at so they're looking at the rate of direct deaths so that is the primary infection you know the, the, the first person I guess in a household who who dies from the disease compared to uh, secondary or the indirect deaths so those that are then happening in household and family members um, and the first thing they found was that in, in nations where they have much older populations, the number of direct deaths is, is higher compared to nations with younger populations because there are more older people. So the, the older people are, um, I guess, more likely to be, uh, to be exposed to COVID just generally, not necessarily even through households. But then when you look at co-residence patterns, when you get areas where elderly people tend to live with their families, so for example in Africa and parts of Asia you have these multi-generational households, there you have an increase in indirect deaths because you get more within household transmission of COVID-19. And so the interaction between these two is interesting because you can have, um, so, so I guess the, the kind of the worst case scenario in some respects for COVID-19 mortality is where you have a, a situation where you have a large elderly population and you have multi-generational living patterns, which is what happens in some Southern European countries, because there you have both the um, higher rates of direct deaths in the elderly, but then you also have the higher rates of indirect deaths in the elderly because of this household transmission. And so you see this play out. So, for example, France and Spain, which have quite similar direct death rates, um, because I think they have sort of generally the similar kind of age pattern, but you have quite different um, inter um, co-residence patterns. And so um, so countries like uh, I think Spain has much higher levels of intergenerational co-residence. And so they actually have 
um, higher indirect death rates than France, even though their direct death rates are the same. And then you have other countries where they've got similar indirect death rates because their kind of um, uh, household structures are similar, but, but the age structure of their population is different. And so there you have different direct death rates. So it's all it, it's a bit sort of fuzzy and messy, but it, it's an interesting illustration of how those kind of factors, you know, how we live can really change um, our vulnerability now and our nation's vulnerability to COVID-19. And so, I, you know, I, I don't know in Melbourne about these household transmissions that have been occurring. Um, you know, are these occurring in multi-generational households? Are they occurring in group housing? You know, if you have a lot of young people living together like students, because I think that, you know, I, I suspect it's probably the former, not the, not the latter. Um, so I guess we'll see some more study about it. I mean, it's not necessarily something we're going to change. I mean, it doesn't, you know, can't suddenly change how you live overnight, but it does, um, I guess, highlight some potential vulnerabilities in a population. And if we look across at kind of the financial impacts of COVID-19, we know that Australian general practices, uh, some have taken a massive financial hit during this crisis, but it isn't just happening in Australia. Uh, we've also seen US family physicians who have had to take to crowd fundraising uh, to stay up and running in their practices, which, I mean, it's not totally surprising in the US given the total mess of a health system they have to live in every single day um, compared to having Medicare-funded telehealth here during the pandemic. But what are the stats of practice closures and what's happening, Bianca? Well, yes, it, I mean, it looks in the US that, that uh, general practices or family practices are suffering financially in the same way that Australian general practices are. Um, and you're right, some are actually using uh, sites like GoFundMe just to keep their clinics afloat. Um, so there was a couple of surveys, it was a report in JAMA and um, it they cited a few, quite a few surveys. So, for example, there was one looking at uh, it surveyed 724 medical practices and found that 97% were negatively affected by COVID-19, which is a staggeringly high number. And again, you know, I, I think you're right. The lack of um, of kind of free healthcare in the US has probably made those practices even more vulnerable to financial. Um, impacts than in, in Australia where I think, you know, the fact that we have Medicare and um, has, has, you know, made a big difference. Um, the other one that was interesting was there was a survey of physicians in Texas. Um, Two-thirds of them had cut their working hours and 62% had had their salary, salaries reduced. Um, and uh, even in May, only 6% of um, US primary care physicians who were surveyed. So they surveyed 558 primary care physicians, 6% um, had closed their practices and one third had put staff on furlough. So, I mean, the, the workforce impacts are massive. At a time when <laughs> we need healthcare more than ever, it just, you know, the, I don't know if irony is even the right word, but I mean, it's, it's, the last thing we need is the loss of healthcare at a time like this. And yet, unfortunately, the US, you know, they're kind of appallingly fractured and unjust and just broken healthcare system is um, is a part one of a number of things that's leading to the uh, situation they find themselves in today, I imagine. And if we also take a look at what we now know about how Black, Asian, minority ethnic individuals appear to be uh, at a greater risk of contracting COVID-19. What do we know about this? 
Well, I think what's most surprising about this story is how much we don't know. And I was quite shocked by this. So this was a systematic review published in eClinical Medicine, which is uh, produced by the BMJ group. And they looked at a whole range of sources. So they looked at articles in major journals. They looked at preprints. They looked at um, grey literature, so, um, you know, reports and uh, surveys and things like that. And I was quite amazed that 690 articles on COVID-19 in the major journals, only 12 of these articles reported the ethnicity of the participants. And that, to me, is just insane. It's, it, you know, it's working on the assumption that we're all this kind of <laughs> homogenous white population or even just homogenous population. Um, and we're, we're really, I mean, what, what has come out of this and has come out of numerous studies is very clear evidence that COVID does not, you know, impacts um, particularly black, Asian, minority, ethnic people disproportionately in terms of their risk of infection and their risk of um, adverse outcomes from that. So, um, you know, it was a very kind of uh, basic, I guess, overview, but really it it's, um, suggested that black, Asian and Hispanic individuals have a higher risk of acquiring the infection compared to white individuals and black individuals have the highest risk. Um, there was also... Um, evidence more from the preprint and the kind of grey literature that um, people of black and Asian ethnicity have higher risk of hospitalisation, high risk of admission to intensive care and uh, and high risk of death from COVID-19. So as the authors pointed out, and I think it's it's very clear as well, that, you know, really we need to understand the impact of ethnicity uh, when it comes to COVID-19 risk and outcomes because that will have a huge impact on how we manage um, manage the pandemic and, and manage individual patients. So there's definitely a lot more need for um, for study on this. And actually just on that, um, I was uh, listening to a webinar earlier today that was talking about um, the Indigenous uh, response to COVID-19 in Australia and how so many, um, there's just been this absolutely phenomenal um, pulling together of all of these Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations coordinated at national, state and local levels, community levels. And, um, it, you know, Indigenous Australia has actually done better in terms of, um, you know, it's very low numbers of COVID infections, no, I think no COVID deaths at all in um, Indigenous Australians. Uh, and they've done better than non-Indigenous Australians. They've done better than most populations in the world because they just responded so quickly and were able to, to really mobilise this incredible network, um, which was, you know, Aboriginal-controlled organisations, Indigenous-led, uh, Indigenous-tailored information, health communications. It, I mean, it, it's really phenomenal. It really should serve as a benchmark for any response to, you know, to these kind of situations anywhere in the world that's you know one piece of, of really good news in this pandemic is just um that you know australian indigenous communities have um have managed this situation better than anyone in the world i think absolutely that's fantastic news and it really does show how powerful uh community-led care that is both uh from the community and by the community for that same community is highly effective as well. Yep, absolutely. And so the other news that came out this week, if you're an RACGP member, is that if you log into your dashboard, you've actually been awarded kind of a bonus 25 CPD points. Uh, and that's basically a way that the college is acknowledging all of the 
uh, extra learning and time that every member has had to put in to basically staying abreast of all of the crazy rapid information that's firing out of all centres uh, for this pandemic, which is great news if you're a frequent reader of our magazine or you listen to this podcast on the regular. It means that your hours have not been in vain. Bianca, thank you so much for joining me again on this podcast. It's really a pleasure to have you and to have your wealth of knowledge with us every week. It's been fun. Thank you. And if you're not already subscribed, you can look us up on any pod server of your choosing. Just search for The Medical Republic or you can listen on our website. See you next time.